Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Revoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. She is a resident scholar for American Vision. He has authored several books, including Restoring America One Country at a Time. If you've did I say country? Sorry. We could we could say that too, right, though? <laughs> if you listen to Apologia Radio, you know his commercial very well with the cool song and everything. Um, <laughs> the Bible and War in America, Biblical Logic and Theory and Practice, God versus Socialism, The Return of the Village Atheist, What Would Jesus Drink? And if you see his shirt when he comes up here, he can answer that question for you. A spirit-filled study, uh, sorry, and Jesus versus Jerusalem and more. He's featured in several audio and video lectures on various topics of economics, apologetics, and church history, and serves as a regular contributor to AmericanVision.org and Apology Radio. Joel is married and has five children. Joel McDermott, come on up. Thank you all once again. I'm going to do something similar to what I did last night, and so I'll just reiterate in a short, little shorter version. I am not doing anything original here. This is not me. I want to go back and start old school and give you some 1980s theonomy here and just show you how radical and crazy and flipped out we are. On the topic of the gospel of the kingdom of God, and that's a connection that's not often made. In a lot of minds, especially because of dispensationalism and premillennial views, and uh, my debate opponent this evening will be historical premill, but as far as the nature of God's kingdom coming in goes, there's not much difference between them. And that has affected evangelicalism and fundamentalism so profoundly that there is the separation between kingdom mentality and the things that would go on in a kingdom with law and government and all of that kind of stuff, and gospel, which is what we're supposed to be doing now. And any time when the theonomists came along, that kind of just threw a hand grenade into their paradigm. And so we were attacked mercilessly uh, from all angles uh, from that perspective. So I'd like to talk about a little bit about that topic today, because when the New Testament introduces the gospel, it is the gospel of the kingdom. It's not the gospel and then the kingdom later. It's the gospel of the kingdom. Now, this is not to confuse law and works by any means, but to put them in the proper relationship. You'll hear a little bit more about that uh, this evening in the debate when I exegete uh, one passage. This is from a chapter, actually two chapters, in uh, Gary's, the the book uh, collaborated between Gary North and Gary DeMar entitled Christian Reconstruction, What It Is and What It Isn't. And this is the book by North, or the chapter by North called The Nature of God's Kingdom. And I think this is one of the things we need to really spend time on is the nature of the kingdom here and now, as you just heard Marcus wonderfully lay out the biblical theology behind that. Or is it something we must wait to do in the future and that we can't hope to engage in now? Because what I always hear is, oh, you guys want to build the kingdom. You think you're going to bring in the kingdom of God by man's works 
Well, we never said that. You guys are putting that in our mouths. But yes, we do believe we're here to build the kingdom, not by our own hands and our own works, but as servants of God according to his law in, submer- in submission to him. Uh, certainly, and of course we've always said that begins with conversion. But yes, we do believe that that has outworking uh, at this time. And when we begin on this topic, we're always confronted with this one particular verse, and it's John 18:36, when Pilate asks Jesus, Are you a king? And he said, did, Is this your own idea, or did you get this idea from the people who turned me over to you, from the Jews? And he said, They're the ones that delivered you over. And Jesus says, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. And this verse has probably been thrown at us more times than just about anything. It's abused uh, on on par, the equivalent of secular people throwing Matthew 7, 1 in your face, judge not lest you be judged. In other words, don't preach to me, I don't want to hear it. And this is the fundamentalist and premillennial world's version of Matthew 7, 1 for the Reconstructionists. But North goes on to ask, what about the kingdom of God? Does it have any jurisdiction or manifestation on earth? Or is it strictly heavenly and limited to the human heart? Whenever a Christian argues that Christians have a God-given responsibility to work today to build God's kingdom on earth, Unless he's referring only to personal evangelism or missions, someone will object. Jesus wasn't building a political kingdom. He was building his church. The church isn't an earthly kingdom. After all, his kingdom is not of this world. And North wants us to pay attention to this. Notice the implicit argument here. First, Jesus was building his church and is building his church true. Second, Jesus is building his kingdom. Not us, not our hands, not our works, Jesus. True. Third, the church is not supposed to be involved in politics. From the standpoint of the institutional church, absolutely true. Fourth, his kingdom, therefore, is not political. sounds true, doesn't it? But North wants us to pay attention. That's true only on one condition. And that condition is if you are saying that God's kingdom is identical with the institutional church. That's the only way that follows. And so let's ask the question, is his kingdom identical with his church? And again, I'm basically just reading North to you. It always astounds me when I hear Protestants cite John 18.36 in order to defend a narrow definition of God's kingdom in history. Four centuries ago, this narrow definition was the Roman Catholic view of the kingdom. Roman Catholics equated the kingdom with the church, meaning the church of Rome. The world is outside of the church, they said, and it is therefore doomed. The institutional church is all that matters as far as eternity is concerned, they argued. The world was contrasted with the kingdom, quote, church, 
and the church could never encompass the world. In sharp contrast, the Protestant Reformation was based on the idea that the institutional church must be defined much more narrowly than God's world-encompassing kingdom. Protestants always argued that God's kingdom is far wider in scope than the institutional church. And so from the Protestant viewpoint, one, the kingdom is more than the church as an institution, and two, the church is less than the broader concept of the kingdom. The Protestant doctrine of every man a priest, as Protestant an idea as there ever was, even though it's actually just an Old Testament concept brought into the New Testament by Peter, rests on the assumption that each Christian's service is a holy calling, not just the ordained priest's calling. Each Christian is supposed to serve a full-time work, as a full-time worker in God's kingdom. I just realized I made a mistake. Um, my only Bible I have in my hands is on my cell phone. Uh, Jeff, could I borrow your Bible? Jeff, is Jeff in here? Uh, well, I want to flip through when it's a little easier for talking. That's, that's fine. I can, I can work from here for now. Um, okay, what translation is that? That'll work. Thanks, buddy. I know you can't follow along now, so... Well, I had it upside down at first, so it looked Canadian, but... Sorry, sorry. Romans 12. Gary cites Romans 12, 1 in here. Uh, now, I, I preached a mini ser- sermon series on this at my church. Now, by the way, I'm not ordained. I do pulpit supply. And, uh, but I preach for them about once a month. And a while back, I did a mini sermon series on 12 and 13 chapter. Now, uh, and this is where he starts. Every Christian says, so we're going to think about this. The church, is, as you all know, is not the four walls of the church, although it, it can be that. From the institutional perspective, the church is the eldership, I mean, we're, as Calvin said, where the gospel is preached, the sacraments are administered, and discipline is met out under the authority of the elders. That's the, that's the institution of the church. But the church, in the broader concept, is the body of Christ. And all that we're called to do as Christians, go into the world, perform our callings that God's given us in our particular areas of service. I'll come back, I hope, to that concept of service in a minute. And so Gary wants to make that point, and he points us back to Romans 12.1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Now, before I go any further, stop. There's a therefore in that passage. Think about that. What does a therefore mean? It means this is the conclusion to an argument. But what argument did he make? The, the argument that he's referring to here is chapters 1 through 11 of the book of Romans. This is the hinge, if you will, in the book of Romans. He starts off, as Jeff made such a great point last night, how this starts, that he came to, to preach the promise through his prophets in the Holy Scripture concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh, was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of the faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. That's how he opens. That's the gospel of the kingdom of God there, by the way. And then he goes into to, to the rest of chapter 1, and he talks about the depravity of man and how they've all, they've all gone away and gone astray. And he said, those that do these things deserve death. He's not just talking about the broad, broad uh, fact that all the wages of sin are, is death across the board. He, he hits that in chapter 3. 
Here he's talking about the acts of perversion and homosexual, homosexuality, sodomy, everything else, deserves the death penalty, and you all know that. That's what he's saying. And then he goes into chapter 2, and he talks about the works of the law written on the heart. Then he goes into chapter 3 and talks about we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Then he comes into chapter 4 and talks about salvation is by grace, not works. Chapter 5, the new Adam. Chapter 6, you're not under grace, but under law. Well, he's not talking about all the law, of course. It still has application in our life. Even all of our critics admit that. And he says so in, in chapter 7. The law is holy and just and good. Thereby we establish the law. Chapter 8, it's about adoption. And it's about, oh, it's about waiting for that day of the redemption of the sons of God that the entire earth, there's universal redemption right there in front of you. It's not just souls. It's the entire creation. And then chapter 9, election, chapter 10 and 11, the Jews and their future. And, of course, I'm condensing all this. And all this great body of theological literature of probably the most profound epistle ever written in human history. And it comes down to this. Therefore, brothers, I beseech you, because of all this theology I've been teaching you up to this point, I beseech you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. That is a terrible translation. Worship may be, I haven't, I haven't double-checked worship, but the word spiritual literally means logical. Logizomai. It's logical. What's Paul saying? This, and people don't catch this. A lot of the undercurrent of the argument in the book of Romans is he's talking to the Jewish contingent among that body of believers who are trying to impose circumcision, who are trying to impose feast days, who are trying to impose the Hebrew calendar, who are trying to impose all of these ceremonial regulations that Paul calls the weak and beggarly elements of the law that are passing away. And he's trying to tell them, quit looking at that stuff. Quit looking at the temple. Quit looking at the sacrifices. If you want to talk about sacrifice, take all this theology I've read and then go to this verse right here. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice because Christ fulfilled all that stuff in his person and you are his body and now you are called to sacrifice as a living sacrifice. Do you, you beginning to see the, what the church is? It's his community of believers in all the earth in terms of service. And I believe the word worship here should be better translated service as it is in some of the other translations. Service. It was a comment Marcus made a while ago, and I know he was talking from the perspective of many of our critics. He was encouraging people, if you're engaged in art, if you're an artist of some sort, and you, you're engaged in work, and I think this is what he said, that is not a ministry. And I know that's from our critics' perspective, from the traditional premillennial mindset or that Catholic mindset, that that's the world over there and ministry's over here. And we need to disabuse ourselves of that notion. We are all priests. We are all called to serve as ministers and to minister to one another. And so when someone talks to you and says, are you in ministry? You say, well, yeah, I'm a mother. No, 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 no. Are you engaged in ministry? Yeah, I'm a husband. I'm a wife. No, 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 you're not getting it. Are you involved in ministry? No. Oh, I mean, yeah, yeah, of course I am. I, I'm a businessman. That's how the free market works. If you don't serve people, you get locked out, unless, of course, you have a government job. Then you. 
And even they have to serve people within certain bounds or it doesn't work. So yeah, I'm in ministry. No, man, you're not getting it. No, you're not getting it. You've got a dualistic mindset in which you've separated pious things from worldly things, and it's not legitimate, according to Paul. Now, I want you to watch this. He's just setting the stage for what is about to just revolutionize these people's lives, and it will ours too if it hasn't already and if we let it. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transfined by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, good and perfect, uh, acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to every one of you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members. Oh, now we're talking about the church, not the institution, but the body of Christ. One body, many members. And the members do not all have the same function. Well, now we're talking about callings and division of labor. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Let us use them if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. So he's describing the community that Christ has called us to be. And it's not just the four walls of the church. It's everything in your life. And whatever gift you've been given in that community, use it. That is your logical service. That's your ministry. That is your priesthood. And so he gives us the general concept. And then he starts giving us the concept of the body and how the church and we're supposed to work with each other. And then he goes on and he gives the ethic for it. And remember what Jeff was talking about last night? It's all about love. When I preached this series, the title of the series was The Society of Love. Because the ethic is right there. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. I love that verse 13. That is, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. And he, he made a comment a while ago about my brisket, and it is good. <laughs> but more than eating it, I love doing it because of the community that the table fosters and that hospitality we should never underestimate that the power of that you should cultivate it in your family if you and I know probably nobody in here does this but if you're one of those families that's fast food and grab and go and you don't ever sit down and eat together stop it sit down and eat together but contribute to the needs of the saints what is that that is a private welfare program that is a private social security fund is what that is. And it's directly out of Old Testament uh, ethics. Okay, so now he's, he's given us the concept for the personal service. He said, here's how the body works together. This is your society, your, your Christian society. And he's given us the ethic by which to do it, which is love. And that clearly flows into good works that are both economic 
and worldly, if you will, eating. There's not much more worldly need than eating. And then he goes on to tell us how to relate to those outside the body. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but, but give thought to what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Now, I want you to realize, he has not left the same stream of thought. He's gone into now, how do you relate to those without, especially those that are persecuting you? And he's saying, don't avenge yourselves, because Christian ethics is not about personal vengeance. And, of course, that comes directly out of the Old Testament, out of the Pentateuch. All he's doing here is quoting from the Pentateuch. But I want you to notice something. God doesn't just leave us there. He doesn't say there's this separation between you and the world when it comes to persecution and, per, and, and uh, interpersonal conflict. In, in, indeed, if there's actual persecution and wrongdoing going on, it's crime. Paul doesn't stop here. And I want you right now to realize that there is no chapter division in the original of this letter. And so continue reading chapter 12 seamlessly into chapter 13. And what does he talk about? He's just told you, don't take personal vengeance because the wrath belongs to God. Well, does that mean we have to wait for God's wrath to manifest in history however he decides to? No. Read chapter 13. And that, we always start with 13. And I, I say go back and start with 12 and flow into 13 and you'll get the big picture, what he's doing. That the kingdom of God includes the civil magistrate. And let me just read it and you'll see. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities for there is no th authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to, to good conduct but to bad would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant. Okay? There's his, his, that's his service. That's his calling. For your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. So he's just told you, don't take this into your own hands. But he didn't stop there. He didn't leave it hanging out there in the clouds. He says, you've got an office on earth to take care of that the proper way, to avenge wrongdoing and to protect the good. Now, of course, we can go on if we wanted to and say, well, by what standard does he do that? And we'll hopefully get to that this evening. For he is an avenger of the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. Now, I skipped the verses on taxes because I don't like those. <laughs> now, I have, uh, I have actually written on those. Me, me and Doug Wilson had an exchange on taxation that was very gentlemanly. I actually talked to him on the phone about it. It was great. And uh, I'm just going to skip it for a little bit of brevity. 
Uh, but you can go read that article if you want my view of that. But listen, he picks back up in verse 8, and he says, Owe no one anything except to, there's the ethic again, love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the hope of the gospel. Has fulfilled what? The law. You can't separate love from law. Love is not a touchy-feely emotion that you get when you hug your brother. That may be there, and it's good if it is there, but that's not what love is. Love is fulfilling the law. It is a standard of behavior. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And any other commandment, that includes the judicial code, are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. So you see what, what he's done. Paul has taken all of that theology that he taught all through the book of Romans, and in chapters 12 and 13, he gives you what society ought to look like under that theology. And it's all based on service to one another and performing your calling before God. And it is more than just the sacraments and all of that. It is every aspect of your calling under the ethic of love, which is fulfilling the law. How do you know you're loving someone? That's the major issue. How do you know you're actually loving somebody? You can only measure that not by how you feel, not even necessarily by their input, not by popular vote. I mean, heaven help us today if it's by popular vote. It's only by God's standard, and it's only where he's revealed it in his law. So it's good that Paul makes those connections. Now, I can tell I'm not going anywhere near through all this literature, but thankfully, since it's based on a book, you can go read the book and get the rest of it. Let me make a few more points. North goes on then. What we find today is that fundamentalist Protestants have unknowingly, instead of doing what I just did with Paul's ethic, have unknowingly adopted the older Roman Catholic view of church and kingdom. He quotes from Peter Masters. Does anyone know who Peter Masters is? He is the heir to Spurgeon's pulpit. He is the present heir to Spurgeon's pulpit. And he criticizes us in a, in a book, in an article. Reconstructionist writers all scorn the attitude of traditional evangelicals who see the church as something so completely distinct and separate from the world that they seek no authority over the affairs of the world. Gary adds, we do not argue, as this critic argues, to defend his own position of cultural isolation, that, quote, the kingdom of God is the church, small as it may sometimes appear, not the world. So I'm not making this stuff up, are we? The definition of the kingdom of God as the institutional church is the traditional Roman Catholic definition of the kingdom, and it has led in the past to ecclesiocracy. It places everything under the institutional church. The church in principle absorbs everything, which is what happened in the Middle Ages. It was why the Protestant Reformation did what it did in large part. But he goes on to show the flip side of that. The same definition of the church can also lead to the ghetto mentality and cultural isolation. It places nothing under Christianity because the kingdom is narrowly defined as merely the institutional church. Because the institutional church is not authorized to control the state, and that's correct, 
And because the kingdom, they say, is said to be identical with the church, which is incorrect, the kingdom of God is then redefined as having nothing to do with anything that is not strictly ecclesiastical. And that is their view of the kingdom. But what does God's word say about the kingdom? Pietists have sharply separated the kingdom of God, narrowly defined, from the world. Separating the institutional church from the world is necessary, but separating God's kingdom from this world leads to the surrender of the world to Satan's kingdom. Because there's no neutrality there. And you actually hear this in a lot of fundamentalist preaching. It's not just the world out there, it's Satan. So if you make rap music, you can't even do that because that's Satan. That's his realm. At the very best, it's humanism. It's ungodliness. And so this sharp division, which is adopted from the old Catholics and then imposed upon modern fundamentalists, draws this sharp, sharp line between what we can do over here that's holy, which is praying and reading your Bible, and uh, you know maybe watching TBN, <laughs> certainly contributing to TBN, that would be very holy. But if you get outside of that into the things, you're in the world, and the world is Satan's. Well, that's, Jeff quoted this passage last night, and it's so important, Luke 11. And, and you, you remember it, I'm sure, that when Jesus comes casting out the unclean spirits, and the Pharisees attack him for doing this, and they say he's only doing it by the power of Beelzebub. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. If Satan is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? If you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebub, and if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, then who do your sons cast them out by? Therefore, let them be your judges. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons... Then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Did Jesus cast out demons? Yes. Did he do it by the finger of God? Yes. Then the kingdom is in our midst. By the way, the phrase the finger of God only appears one other time in Scripture. And it's in the judgments, the plagues upon the house of Egypt. Jesus was not just here describing his work as the power of God, he was linking what was about to happen to the state of Israel in AD 70 to the judgments that fell on the house of Pharaoh. He was implicitly telling those Pharisees, and you know they caught it because they knew this, you're Pharaoh, you're Egypt. And in fact, in the book of Revelation, it calls the holy city that which is spiritually called Sodom and Egypt. That was a side, side measure, uh, no extra charge. John uh, makes the same point over here in John, uh, chapter 12, verses 27 through 31. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. There's a servant presenting himself as a living sacrifice. 
Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world, Satan, be cast out. And when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. What was Jesus' view of the world? It was not that it belonged to the humanists. It was not that it belonged to Satan. It was saying, he's been cast out, and I've been lifted up on that cross. Was Jesus lifted up? Yes. Then what? The prince of this world's been cast out. That world does not belong to Satan. It belongs to Jesus and his body. And that's you. And that's why in Daniel 7, when it talks about the kingdom of God, it says he comes with ten thousands of his saints, and they rule with him. It repeats that in the book of Revelation. That is the nature of the kingdom of God, not just the institutional church. A few more things. And now it becomes a matter of picking and choosing what to say and what not to say. North proposes a little test. Jesus comes back and fulfills, he kicks Satan out. He regains title to the earth, which is exactly what he says in Matthew 28. All power in heaven and on earth given to me. He restores the dominion mandate. And he goes on to say, uh, uh, based on this concept, we understand that he redeemed the entire earth. Now, redemption is a word that is used equivalently. When we talk about redeeming your soul, we often really mean we're talking about converting your soul. We're talking about regeneration. The concept of redemption is an economic concept. It's something that was lost. You lost title to it, and you're paying a price to get it back. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6 to all these people and all these sins that would keep you out of the kingdom of heaven, he says, but you've, you're washed. And then he warns them against adultery and fornication. And he says, why would you join your body with a harlot? If you do that, you become one with her. But you are not your own. You are bought with a price. That is redemption. Jesus Christ has title to you, so to speak. And he also has title to the entire earth. And so, and of course, that's what happened when Adam fell, just as, as Marcus talked about a while ago. The, the curse spread to all the earth in, in different ways, in different forms, but the curse, spread, the curse of sin spread everywhere. And so North's challenge to us is to say, if that is the case, and Christ has bought it all back, then what part of the earth that was cursed and affected by sin does he not redeem back? What part gets left out of that program? The world has not been fully restored in history, obviously, nor can it be until the day of final judgment. But progressively over time, it is possible for the gospel to have its restorative effects through the empowering of God's Holy Spirit, another one of these great passages in our literature you can find. 
Through the empowering of God's Holy Spirit, redeemed people are able to extend the principles of healing to all areas under their jurisdiction in life, church, family, and states. All Christians admit that God's principles can be used to reform the individual. They also understand that if this is the case, then the family can be restored according to God's Word. And next, the church is capable of restoration. That's what the Reformation was all about. But then they stop mention the state and they say no nothing can be done to restore the state the state is inherently permanently satanic even though the same person that says that just quoted Romans 13 saying he's the servant of God it is a waste of time to work the heel of state and the Christian reconstructionist asks why not and they never tell you why not They never point to a passage in the Bible that tells you why the church and family can be healed by God's word and spirit, but the state can't be. Today, it is the unique message of Christian reconstruction that civil government, like family government and church government, is under the Bible-revealed law of God and therefore is capable in principle of being reformed according to God's law. And this means that God has given to the Christian community as a whole, remember that Romans 12 and 13 passage, enormous responsibility throughout history. God-given responsibility is far greater than merely preaching a gospel of exclusively personal salvation. The gospel we preach must apply to every area of life that has been fouled by sin and its effects. The church and individual Christian evangelists must preach, must preach the biblical gospel of comprehensive redemption, not just personal soul winning. Wherever sin reigns, there the gospel must be at work, transforming and restoring. And when I think about that, I think of the great hymns. And it brings me great pleasure to think that at Christmas time, we're all post-millennialists. Even my brethren who have no idea what they're saying, the words are coming out of their mouths and they don't hear themselves saying, No more shall sin and sorrow grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He came to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. That's all Gary North is saying here. He's singing Isaac Watts in his own scholarly, rhetorical way. Now, let me make one more quotation, if I could find the page uh, stuck in here. Um, Yeah, absolutely. So what is Jesus saying? What does he mean when, when he says, my kingdom is not of this world? If on the one hand he's saying that, but on the other hand he's always over here saying the prince of the world is cast out and it's all mine... He's obviously not saying that my kingdom has no relationship to this earth. And I I did a little study because it says, as he goes on, Jesus says, but now my kingdom is not of this world. And some actually read that as a temporal thing. My kingdom is not of this world now, which implies that it will be. And I'm not necessarily sure that's the best translation of the word, although it can mean that. And so I went and I did what I've tried to do throughout this conference is, although I'm reading a lot of Reconstructionist literature, if I have to fall back on an authority, I want it to be a non-theonomic Reformed Baptist authority, just to cater to my opponent. And so I went out and I found a commentary by one of the best, brightest Reformed Baptist New Testament scholars in the world, a name you all recognize, D.A. Carson, and say, what does he say about this passage? And here's what he says in his explanation of verse 36. It is important to see that Jesus' statement should not be misconstrued as meaning that his kingdom is not active in this world or has nothing to do with this world. John certainly expects the power of the inbreaking kingdom to affect this world 
Elsewhere, he insists that the world is conquered by those who believe in Jesus. 1 John 5, 4. But theirs is not the sort of struggle and victory that cannot effectively be opposed by armed might. See, all these guys are reconstructionists when they just exegete the text. But when they hear us preach it, they get scared because of whatever cultural or psychological or traditional background, and then they start criticizing us. And I'm, I'm going to say, look, all I'm doing is quoting you. And, you know, well, maybe, maybe you don't like Carson, but there are some guys it's very difficult to argue with. And so last night I finished with a very rousing passage that made my point for me and with which I agreed. Tonight, or this, this morning, I would like to do the same thing. Actually, it's afternoon now, so this afternoon I would like to do the same thing. This quotation right here from a preacher who said, I long for the day when the precepts of the Christian religion shall be the rule among all classes of men in all transactions. I often hear it said, do not bring religion into politics. Well, this is precisely where it ought to be brought. And set there in the face of all men as on a candlestick. I would have the cabinet and the members of parliament do the work of the nation as before the Lord. And I would have the nation, either in making war or peace, consider the matter by the light of righteousness. We are to deal with other nations about this or that upon the principles of the New Testament. I thank God that I have lived to see the attempt made in one or two instances. And I pray that the principle may become dominant and permanent. We have had enough of clever men without conscience. Let us now see what honest, God-fearing men will do. But we are told that we must study, quote, British interests, as if it were not always to the nation's truest interest to do righteousness. But we must follow our policy. I say, no, let the policies which are founded on wrong be cast like idols to the moles and to the bats. Stand to that most admirable of policies, as you would that men should do to you, do that, do ye also to them likewise. Whether we are kings or queens or prime ministers or members of parliament or crossing sweepers, this is our rule if we are Christians. Yes, and bring religion into your business and let the light shine in the factory and in the counting house. Then we shall not have quite so much china clay and the calicoes wherewith to cheat the foreigner. Nor shall we see cheap and nasty articles described as of best quality, nor any other of the dodges in trade that everybody seems to practice nowadays. You tradespeople and manufacturers are very much one like the other in this. There are tricks in all trades, and one sees it everywhere. I believe everybody to be honest in all England, Scotland, and Ireland until he is found out. But whether there are so whether there are any so incorruptible that they will never be found wanting, this definite saith not, for I am not the judge. Here's a man who wants Christians of principle, Christian principles in politics, in foreign policy, and in business. And of course, that man was Charles Spurgeon. Now, you have to search those sermons to find those nuggets, but they're there. And the truth is, when the guards let down, and the issue is not when the issue is not put in a theological debate and you have to distance yourself from some opposition you don't like, these guys have always preached Christian reconstruction. And in some cases, they preach overt theonomy. So what we've been saying all of this time about the nature of the kingdom of God is 
is not unprecedented, even among the Reformed Baptist history. And in fact, it was not so long ago that it was lost. And what we've come to view, as I said last night, over several generations that have been dumbed down by not having it taught, is, is simply a people that's not, we're not bringing something new back. Or, or I'm saying we're not bringing something new to the table. We're bringing back something that was just the way it used to be. And so you can choose this day whether you want to carry on with a medieval Roman Catholic view of the kingdom and the church or whether you want to take the biblical view that Paul taught in here and which Spurgeon preached from his pulpit. And that's your choice. And I thank you for making the right one. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.